Welcome to another episode of the Mr. Barton Maths Podcast with me, Craig Barton. A show where I interview people who interest and inspire me from the world of education. Well, I'm going to just come straight out and say it. You are in for an absolute treat today because this episode I spoke to Dylan William. Quite simply, Dylan is one of my all-time heroes. He was the inspiration behind my Diagnostic Questions website and his many books, presentations and writing that I have eagerly consumed over the years have always left me filled up with new ideas to try in the classroom. Dylan William is the Emeritus Professor of Educational Assessment at University College London. In a varied career, he has taught in inner city schools, directed a large-scale testing programme, served a number of roles in university administration, including Dean of a School of Education, and pursued a research programme focused on supporting teachers to develop their use of assessment in support of learning. Well, let me tell you now, it was an absolute pleasure to talk to Dylan, and we covered loads of stuff. In fact, you might just want to listen to this episode at one quarter speed in order to pick up on all the ideas that Dylan shares. So, what did we talk about? Well, I asked Dylan what makes a lesson successful in his opinion. Why is Dylan a big fan of the classic smile resources? And what did a lesson look like involving these wonderful materials? And I'll tell you now, there's a link to where you can access these for free on the podcast page. Why is it a mistake to plan a lesson on the assumption that students will actually understand the topic? And what should teachers do instead? Dylan describes a lesson he taught that went badly and what he learned from it, which leads to a discussion about the the dangers of so-called real-life maths, one of my favourite topics. We talked through Dylan's selection of things he wished he'd knew when he started teaching, including ensuring students know you care and the importance of forgetting for learning. Dylan explains why he thinks lesson observations are a complete waste of time and describes a model that he believes would support teacher development much better. Why is it a good idea to test our students more? And how can we get around the problem that students often hate being tested? What makes good group work and how can you make the whole group accountable? We discuss feedback in great depth. Specifically, when is it effective and when is it simply a waste of time? Some of the findings might just surprise you. Dylan describes the most important piece of research he's been involved in and what other piece of research has surprised him the most. How would Dylan upskill teachers who simply do not have time to go on Twitter, read blogs, study research, listen to podcasts and so on? Why does Dylan like multiple choice questions but is not overly keen on using them with mini whiteboards or electronic voting systems? What books would Dylan suggest teachers read? And finally, Dylan offers up advice for heads of departments and describes how he would change teachers training courses. Phew, hopefully you will agree with me that this interview is absolutely jam-packed full of food for thought and practical takeaways. Things you can try in the classroom tomorrow and ideas that will hopefully improve your teaching practice for good whatever stage of your career you're at. And also, whatever subject you teach, because many of the ideas Dylan shares are not math specific. So please share this episode with your non-maths colleagues, especially any student teachers or NQTs you may know. Links to absolutely everything we discuss are in the show notes. Spoiler alert here, but I was both 
proud and humbled that Dylan picked Diagnostic Questions as one of his big three websites to direct listeners towards. For listeners not aware of this site, it is the largest collection of top quality maths multiple choice questions in the whole wide world, with a growing number of science and computer science questions as well. We've been working hard over the last few months to develop new features such as feedback, reporting, a scheme of work and a mobile app for students. All of this is 100% free and always will be. Just head over to diagnosticquestions.com to find out more. Anyway, no one has come here to listen to me prattle on, so let's get on with it. Oh, and I must just point out that at times the audio, audio recording is a little bit dodgy. Dylan is based in the US, and it seems that the Florida to Blackburn information superhighway is not quite what it needs to be, but hopefully it won't in, uh, spoil your enjoyment too much. So, without further ado, I present Mr. Dylan William. I really hope you enjoy this one, I know I did. There is some absolute gold in here. Enjoy, and I will see you on the other side. Okay, so we can start as ever with your math speed dating questions, Dylan. So question number one, what is your favourite number and why? Uh, I'm not sure it's a, a good answer for a speed dating slot, <laughs> but it's skew's number. Or more precisely, it's Skew's first number. And it's 10 to the power 10 to the power 10 to the power 34. Flipping. Excuse. How are you spelling that? Skew's number. S-K-E-W-E-S. Stanley Skew's was a mathematician who worked with and Hardy. And there's a very interesting conjecture, which is that the number of prime numbers up to a given number is approximated by what's called the logarithmic interval. And... For all the values that people have ever calculated, this um, this function, the logarithmic integral, gives you an overestimate. And it's been checked up to, I think, about 10 to the power 22 or something like that. And every single value has worked. But in 1914, Littlewood proved that actually, at some point, the, uh, the thing flips over and it becomes an, an underestimate. And he also proved that it flips backwards and forwards an infinite number of times. And in 1933, Stanley Skews um, showed that the first switchover must happen before 10 to the power 10 to the power 10 to the 34. Jeez. Hardy said it's the largest number that has ever had any useful function in mathematics. Flipping it, Dylan. I was expecting you to come out with 7 or 21 or something, but we're, we're starting, uh, starting with a big one. And when did you first come across that number? It's actually in uh, Hardy's book, A Mathematician's Apology. So I think I first came across it when I was about 18 years old. So it must have been 1973 or so. I was quite a serious student of mathematics when I was younger, and I read this book, and it mentioned it there, 10 to the power 10 to the power 10 to the 34. Flipping heck. Fantastic. Well, fantastic first answer. And for question number two, Dylan, what was your favourite topic in maths as a student? Well, by now, it should be pretty obvious. It's number theory. <laughs> number theory, primes, things like that. Um, you know, uh, just incredibly beautiful, completely unuseful mathematics or so we thought at the time yes because hardy in the mathematician's apology pointed out that um he none of the work he'd ever done had been useful you know whether numbers could be factorized and things like that and he was proud of the fact that none of his work has ever been used to hurt people <laughs> and of course now uh, 
the factorization of large non-prime numbers turns out to be the key in being able to um, have transactions over the internet being secure because you can actually make the means of coding a number publicly available, but if you don't have the key, you can't decode the number. So these so-called public key crypto systems, which is actually, I think, my first ever published article, um, <laughs> is uh, just an incredible example of things that seem completely useless at one point in time become highly, highly important in, in the future. Flipping And let me ask you this, Dylan. If you were, you're into your numbers and your number theory, was there any area of maths that didn't grab you as a student? Yeah, absolutely. And it was applied math. I couldn't do it. I just couldn't get my head around it. But what was interesting was when I became a teacher and I had to teach applied maths, I was amazed how easy it was. So it's one of those topics. And I've, I've spoken to loads of other maths teachers and they say exactly the same thing. You know, when they were a kid, they couldn't get it. And once they start teaching it, once it clicks, you don't understand why people have so much difficulty with it. Yes. Because applied maths is so much easier than pure maths once it clicks. <laughs> Fantastic. And can I ask you as well, if you weren't involved in education, what, what other job would you like to do, Dylan? I think I'd probably want to be a musician, you know, be for Wales. Um, that didn't work out. But I, I think, I mean, I started teaching as a way of getting money for a band I was working with to buy a public address system. And I did that. I worked semi-professionally as a musician for two years. And after two years, I realized I couldn't carry on doing both. And to my shock and horror, I discovered I was enjoying teaching maths more than I was enjoying playing in the band. So I gave up the music and I've never looked back. I've never regretted it. It's um, something, you know, if things had gone differently, I'm, I would have been very happy doing. But I can't imagine I would have been any happier doing that than I have been doing what I've been doing over the last 40 years or so. Flipping. I can, do you still play music at all just for a hobby? Well, I, I haven't had time, uh, but one of my plans is, as I cut down on work, and uh, I, I plan to retire gradually over the next 25 <laughs> years. So I'm, six, I'm 60 at the moment, and I plan to sort of s slow down very slowly. <laughs> and uh, so I, I aim to have um, less travel, more, less talks to teachers, and more time for music. That, that's the plan, anyway. Fantastic, fantastic. Well, if you could uh, just tell us now, Dylan, if it's all right, just the steps that have led you to where you are currently in your career. Well, I think I've started the journey by saying I, I you know, I was at university, I got a degree, I needed to get some work. And so I started teaching as a way of getting some money together for the band. Found out I couldn't do that, um, both of those things very easily. So I started teaching. I worked in a tough school in London, Christopher Wren. I started work on a Monday morning at the same time as an economics teacher who lasted until morning break. <laughs> and after that, walked off site and was never seen again. You're joking. So, was it a rough so, school? You know, it, was one of the, it was a very rough school. But the advantage was that, you know, if you actually enjoyed it, if you coped with it, if you worked hard as a teacher, you know, you got promoted very quickly because a lot of people couldn't stick it. Yes. Um, but the incredible thing was, you know, I, saw, I had t friends who were teachers in places like Harrow and these kinds of suburban schools, and their kids were much more kind of in it for themselves. Yes. The great thing about working with in inner city schools is kids tell you right away whether your lesson was boring or not. <laughs> but once, but once they really appreciate that you're there for them, what you get back is so much more than what you get back from kids who are just in it for what the school can do for them. Yes. And sorry, Dylan, had you had no training then before before no. going into this? No, I didn't. I, I just started teaching because in those days in London, 
because there's such a shortage of maths and science teachers, you could just train. You could just go in without any training. Jeez. And and how how did you find it? Because I I often tell the story of I'd had a year's training, but when I taught my first lesson, I thought the kids were winding me up because they they were making mistakes and things that I just couldn't even grasp. But at least I'd had a year's training to prepare for that. How did you find those first lessons when you're dealing with kids who firstly don't enjoy mathematics how you enjoy it and also just don't understand mathematics? Was that was that difficult? It was. I'd had a, a year working in a private residential sixth form college. So I, one of the things I think was I was quite lucky with was I'd actually had some work where I was working in a very small groups. So I learned to teach before I had to learn crowd control. Yes. So I had a pretty good understanding of the kinds of difficulties that students had with mathematics. Um, and the school I went to in London, we had they used the SMILE scheme, which is individualized learning. So it, that was... Uh, also very challenging to, in terms of management. It, it was basically a job, you know, if you're willing to put in three or four day, three or four hours every day, marking and setting work, then you could be very effective. But there was no way of being successful unless you're willing to do that kind of extra work. Yes, got it. So c- carry on your journey then, Dylan. So yeah. how long are you at this school for? I was at this school for three years and then there was a merger coming up. Um, with a girls' school next door. This was an old boys' school. And I remember asking the deputy head, you know, what was happening? I, I'd been promoted once in, in that school. And he said, basically, everybody would have to reapply for their jobs. So um, I decided that I would look around. And North Westminster School was a brand new school being created by Michael Marland. It was an amalgamation of four schools on six sites. Jeez. And... They'd already made a commitment to mixability teaching in uh, what we now call years seven, eight, and nine, or what we then called years one, two, and three. And they needed somebody with expertise and smile. So I got my, my first job as deputy head of maths when I was about 26, I think, or uh, I might even be 25. Um, but, and I was in charge of maths on, on one of the lower school sites. So that was just, a, just being in the right place at the right time, having the right expertise. I worked there very happily for four years. Um, an internal job came up. I um, asked the head, would I have a reasonable chance? He said, you'd be a very strong candidate. But then he didn't shortlist me. <laughs> so I went and uh, to talk to him afterwards. I said, so how can you say I'm a really strong candidate? He didn't shortlist me. And he gave me some stupid reason that I didn't really buy. And the next day, by chance, I was offered a research fellowship at Chelsea College on a graded assessment project, graded assessment in mathematics. Right. And so basically, it was just too tempting to take the job and just say, you know, sod off to the school. <laughs> and, and, you know, everybody thought I was crazy because of giving up a safe job yes. in a, in a, in a, as a maths teacher to being a, you know, a, a one-year research fellow on a temporary contract. But, of course, if you're a maths teacher, you're going to find work anywhere if you yes. want it. Yes. So I wasn't that worried about it. And it was just too tempting just to say. And so I, um, I did that job for two years, a research fellow, and then a permanent lectureship came up. And they interviewed six people for the job. And I, I rated myself fifth or sixth because I was the only person who wasn't already training PGC students. Right. And, and I got the job. And so uh, I got as a lecturer, senior lecturer. I um, was involved in the first round of national curriculum test development for 14-year-olds. So I was a for that for two years. Uh, Ken Clark came in as Minister of Education. 
decided we were all doing he called it elaborate nonsense because <laughs> we wanted kids doing projects for their key stage three assessments not these timed written tests right and he, he sacked a lot of us and said you know we'll start again with with proper tests <laughs> so i went back to um to to, to college uh, to work at the college chelsea college had by that time merged with king's college and so i finished my phd and uh, i'd already my original phd was about maths actually but when I'd been doing national curriculum work for about two and a half years, I realized it would be quicker to write up what I'd been doing for two and a half years than to go back to my original PhD thesis. <laughs> so I wrote up some some technical issues in um, psychometrics that we've been grappling with over the two and a half years of the national curriculum test, uh, test development work. And um, you know, ran a PGC course for a little while, and then got appointed head of department, which was kind of strange because I think I was the youngest person in the department. Um, but it was just, it was, you know, there wasn't any interviews for it. The, the, head of the, the head of the university, the college, just said, um, you know, he, he would invite somebody to take over the role. And so I was head of department for four years at King's and then two years as assistant principal of King's College London. And then... The big shift came when uh, I'd now realized I was an assessment specialist. So I worked in assessment. And of course, the mecca for assessment specialists is educational testing service. Yes. So my wife and I were um, in America. So I'd been invited to do some work at a conference in, um, in Georgia, near Atlanta. And so my wife and I took a week's holiday and I then went on to the conference and spent three days at the conference. And I thought it'd be quite nice to go and see, visit ETS on my way back to the UK. And so I, I just phoned up somebody at ETS that I'd met at a conference and I said, you know, can I come and visit? And they said, yeah, sure. And then they said, would you like to come and give a seminar? And I said, why? Fine. What I didn't realize was that I was being invited to do what's called a job talk in America. All right. So people who they think they might want to employ, they actually come and invite and give a job talk. And so anybody in the organization can come to one of these things. They took me out to dinner afterwards. And I remember phoning my wife afterwards and I'm saying, I think I was offered a job today <laughs> because they were talking about, the, you know, how great it was to work at ETS. What a great place to, to, to live uh, New Jersey was. <laughs> and so um, they said, yeah, we'll offer your wife a job as well if she wants, you know, if that's important. And so uh, I went to ETS for three years, worked on formative assessment there, done pretty much all I could do there, I think. The, the organization wasn't really interested in changing its culture. So um, Jeff Whitty, uh, who I've known for many years at the Institute of Education, said, if you're thinking of coming back, coming back to, to London, then let me know, because you know, I'd love to have you at the Institute. And it turned out that Barbara McGilchrist, his deputy, had been standing down and so um, that post was, was open, and so I applied for it and got it. And what's interesting about that job is that everybody assumed that I was applying for this job because I wanted to be the next director of the Institute of Education. Right. And, of course, I had no interest in being a director. If I wanted to run a university, I wouldn't run a, a, a monotechnic like the Institute. I'd have applied to, be, to run King's College when I was there yes. as assistant principal. But um, <clears throat> it's also to do with something that I've re realized 
I'm a much better number two than I am a number one. I, mm-hmm. I, I'd much rather be behind the scenes making sure things work yes. rather than actually doing all the glad handing and fundraising that you have to do when you're a, a, a university vice chancellor. <laughs> so I did four years um, at, at, at uh, the Institute of Education and decided that, you know, it was very, I'm quite good at it, quite enjoyed it, easy life. But I decided, do I really want to spend the next five years of my working life in committees? So then I just decided to go freelance. I'd been working with schools all over the country, all over the world, in fact, but squeezing it around my administrative duties. So in 2010, I resigned from university life and went freelance. And now I just work with teachers all over the world, helping them develop their use of formative assessment. So no plan whatsoever. <laughs> it's often the best way. That's an absolutely fascinating story, that, Dylan. Thank, thanks for sharing that. And I wonder if, if we I, can... One more thing. Oh, one, yeah, please do, please do. Can I, one more thing. Of course, the biggest break was probably being asked to coordinate the development of national curriculum test development in England and Wales in 1989 for 14-year-olds. And I, the reason I got that job was because we had to develop tests in English and Welsh, and I could speak Welsh. <laughs> so the biggest break I got in my career, I got because I could speak Welsh. Nice. And there's no way anybody could have planned for that. You know? It's just just luck. <laughs> Fantastic. Well, I wonder if I can uh, take you back to the, the days of teaching maths, because, and also not, not just you teaching it, but you must have seen hundreds, if not thousands of, of lessons in your time, Dylan. So can I start by asking you, what makes a, a lesson successful in your opinion? You should have asked me that question 20 years ago, because <laughs> then I would have been absolutely certain I knew the answer. And now I know that I do not. <laughs> now I'm pretty sure that nobody else does either. And here's why. Um, Paul Kirshner has got a wonderful definition of learning. He says that learning is a change in long-term memory. If nothing has been changed in long-term memory, nothing has been learned. And so a good lesson is one in which the things that happen are remembered by students in six weeks' time. Yes. And... As Daniel Willingham, an American psychologist, has shown, this depends on the level of cognitive engagement in worthwhile material in the lesson. And we find we have no way of knowing that. So one of the things is we know that engagement is important. But as far as Ofsted is concerned, this has become an obsession with students being busy, cutting stuff up, coloring stuff in. And that's just wrong. I mean, that's because they're not engaging in important, worthwhile stuff. Uh, Willingham's definition, you know, memory, is that memory is the residue of thought. Students remember what they've been thinking about. And so the challenge is students have to be thinking. Students have to be cognitively engaged. The point is that they don't need to be physically active. So people mistake physical activity with cognitive activity. Students can be listening to a lecture and highly engaged. They can be completely motionless and yet learning a great deal. So um, it's really, really hard. Uh, I know less and less, as um, J.M. Barry had one of his characters say in The Admirable Crichton, I'm not young enough to know everything. (laughs) And for me, it gets more and more confusing. But I think we do know now that what we need to be doing is making learning hard for children rather than easy. When we make it too easy for them, they don't have to work hard enough to lay down memories. Yes. So, um, but if we make it too hard, then what happens is 
that long-term memory is not created. And it turns out that the parts of working memory that are used in solving problems are also the parts of working memory that are used to create long-term memories. <laughs> so, um, so, so, so the research is, suggests that different kinds of learning activities are optimal for novices and experts. So for, for novices, worked examples are highly effective. For experts, problems and struggle seems to be more effective. Jeez, that's that's very interesting. Um, and I, I guess, well, can I ask you this, Dylan? What, if I'd have asked you that question 20 years ago, what would you have said? What did you think back then made a successful lesson? Oh, I'd have said, you know, lots of student conversations, lots of student activity, um, clear explanations from the teacher, um, you know, things like that. Um, so, so, you know, I mean, I, I don't think I was deeply inconsistent <laughs> with the search. Um, I don't think I was contradicting it, but I don't think I'd have been so clear about, you know, the experience that every maths teacher has, which is that students can do it today and tomorrow, but not in two weeks time. Sure. Um, that I think. Uh, but the other thing that I think I was quite lucky with, the scheme we used, this individualized math scheme, somehow, and I don't know who first had this idea, but somehow the scheme was always intended that students would do one worksheet on a topic like fractions, and then they do something on a puzzle, and then they do something on shape and space, and they might do some more on fractions in two weeks' time. Yes. And so, intuitively, the person who designed this scheme had hit on this idea of distributed practice. Rather than doing practice in big chunks, like doing two weeks on fractions, yes. you do a day on fractions, and then something else, and you do a day on something else. And it turns out that is actually the best model for curriculum sequencing. Distributed practice interleaved with other things. And so, um, you know, that wasn't my, my skill or anything. That was just me happening to work with a system where these really important principles were kind of baked in to the method of working. And can I ask you, Dylan, is this that you mentioned smile? Um, now, am I am I thinking the same thing here that um, I've seen these cards and I think that I've got a PDF version of them. They're kind of individualized cards that have got like a little task on or maybe five oh. questions for students to try and, and the numbered and so on. Is this the same thing that I'm thinking of? Yeah, absolutely. So, so basically, there's a, I mean, smile is really three things. It's a way of keeping track of what kids are doing when they're not all doing the same thing in a class. It's a set of resources that are ones you're familiar with. Uh, worksheets, activities, sometimes, you know, a couple of pages from a textbook. So SMILE was very Catholic in its approach. There were some books that worked very well, so we use those books. And, and thirdly, SMILE was a community of teachers who worked together to develop their own practice. And we started with about a thousand cards. I think by the time SMILE folded, there was well over 2,000 cards. But the important thing was there was no curriculum sequence. Each teacher chose which activities for each child done on, you know, they were, some were harder than others, but there were no kind of um, laid down progressions. The idea was when you plan the sequence of work for each kid, you sat down and thought about the kid and thought about the tasks and thought which activities would be the best way of getting the student to acquire this skill. So it was quite innovative and quite labor intensive. And ultimately it was abandoned because teachers said that they're just handing out worksheets. Well, the problem is that is what happens if you don't prepare well. But of course, if you if you do all your preparation outside, then in the classroom, almost all my teaching was one-to-one -one conversations with students, helping them overcome struggles with the materials they were trying to work through. 
Um, um, can I just ask, Sentiment. what did a lesson yeah. look like? Was So it's not each kind of traditional, this is a lesson on adding fractions or this is a lesson on solving linear equations. Were students literally doing completely different topics? Absolutely. Kids would get in, come into the classroom, sit down, get their folders out, pick up their materials, work through them, call me over for help uh, if, they, if they were stuck. And after they'd done 10 tasks, to which the answers were freely available in the classroom, by the way, after they'd done 10 tasks, they do a test on that task, um, and those answers were not available, they would hand in their tests, I would then mark the test and assign the next batch of 10 materials based on how well they'd done on the test. So if they, you know, if they show they've mastered the work, I'd move them on. If they needed more repetition, um, then they do more at the same level, and maybe you'd actually go down a level if it's proving much too difficult for them. Flipping it now. This is this is sounding good. As I say, I was aware of the resources, but I w certainly wasn't aware that every child was doing something different. And um, can you see this? Like, if there was a big smile comeback, could you, could you see this going down well with today's students and today's teachers and the kind of environment that schools are in these days? Or would there be some barriers? I mean, I'm sure there would be barriers, but I think it would be quite effective. You know, it, it, we see a lot of that in in many subjects. In art, for example, kids D and T. Kids are often work, working on a project, they come in, they get their work out, they carry on working on the project they've been working on, they're often working on the same project for a whole half term. So I think it doesn't, there's no natural um, impediment to doing this. The thing that I would do more now if I was teaching SMILE is I'd have more collaborative activity. So SMILE could lead to students working individually all the time. Of course they asked each other for help, which we encouraged. But I think what I would do now is structure more activities where students had to work cooperatively or collaboratively, and just because I think that was a, a, a real weakness of the of the small scheme, as implemented in, in most schools. Got it. Fantastic. And um, can I just ask you one? Well, one more thing before I ask you one of my favourite questions, and that is, you, you've touched upon that um, some things that perhaps to the outward observer look like they're going to be effective such as kids moving around cutting up jigsaws or whatever perhaps aren't as effective as as they appear to be is there any other kind of so-called conventional wisdom that, that you hear banded around a lot that you don't necessarily agree with that is effective for, for teaching and learning i think the most obvious one which has been the cornerstone of my own intellectual work for the last 20 years which is that routinely a teacher's teaching a whole class needs to decide whether to move on or not, asks the class a question, has three volunteers raise their hands, <laughs> one of those volunteers responds, and the teacher, if they get a correct answer, says, good, and moves on. <laughs> so to, to, to me, the absolutely most dysfunctional thing that's happening in our classrooms is teachers making decisions about the learning needs of 30 students based on the responses of confident volunteers. Yes. Well, can I ask you just to just to push you on this a little bit, Dylan? If if we could put you in the in the shoes of the teacher, um, and again, feel free to p pick any topic you like. But could you tell me what would be a better way to deal with that? Because I, I fall into the into that trap myself, and it's very tempting. You've you've asked a question, you think you've done a really good explanation, you're praying someone's gonna get it right so you can almost validate the effort that you've put in and so on and I, I fall into that trap myself that somebody gets it right and you just make that assumption that everybody's got it right what what would be kind of a more effective way what, you, what would you advise teachers to do instead well because most of the time we're actually teaching something that we've planned and therefore what I would do is as at the same time I was planning the lesson I'd plan a multiple choice question that I could use you know 20 minutes into the lesson to check the students have told me some 
Sometimes it might be at the beginning of the lesson if I really don't know what this class knows about this topic. But typically, you know, halfway through the lesson, I'd ask every student, and it would be a multiple choice question, and they'd probably have four options. And I'd ask them to just vote with their fingers, one, two, three, four, for what, A, B, C, or D. So the idea is that you, you periodically create situations where you get information from the whole class. My argument is that our typical lessons are based on the assumption that, w that students will learn effectively from well-designed teaching. So basically, kids not getting it is unusual. Yes. That's our assumption. It's clearly wrong. <laughs> it's just so obviously wrong. Kids won't necessarily get it. Kids don't get it most of the time. And therefore, I'm just suggesting we should design lessons on the basis of assumptions we know to be true. If you think that, that teaching is difficult and learning is complex, then you might want to check the students have learned something before you move on. And you wouldn't be relying on responses from the most confident students to make those decisions. Yes. And again, just to, just to flesh this out a little bit, because I know listeners mm -hmm. uh, are obsessed with, with the kind of practical takeaways, as am I from this. And obviously, listeners and yourself will know that through my through the Diagnostic Questions website, massive fan of, of these styles of questions. Can I just ask, what, what are you doing in that situation where you have got two or three students who have confidently given them the answer, that they're, you're confident based on their explanation or whatever, that they're secure in their knowledge, but their peers in the class, they're, they're still struggling. Just on a practical level, what, what, what are you doing there as, as a teacher? What are you doing with these kids who've got it and with these kids who haven't quite got it? Well, I mean, there's such an infinite number of strategies. Sure. So one strategy would be, for example, to ask the three kids who've got it each for, to, for, for tomorrow's lesson to work out a way of explaining it and then have them begin the next lesson by giving their three different explanations and then have the rest of the class voting on which one was the clearest. Nice. You know, it's just just, just something like that. Just constantly trying to use the resources of the class for the whole class's learning. Trying to community, create a community of learners. In other words, try to keep the class together as a group of learners rather than trying to spread them out, which is the, 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 the result of so-called differentiation, if you like. For me, it's for me. And, and of course, people worry about the needs of the higher attainers. Well, the research of Robert Slavin and others shows very clearly that often when students teach each other, it's yes. the ones who give help that have the biggest impact on their own understanding. Fantastic. Well, that, that certainly reassured assured me. That's excellent. Thank you, Dylan. Well, let, let's put you on a bit of a downer now, because I wonder if you could think back to your uh, dark distant past of teaching and possibly a lesson that didn't go as well as you'd planned it as well as you thought only if you could describe it to us and, and crucially what you learned from that experience if that's all right sure well i was doing a master's degree part-time at the south bank polytechnic i actually have a master's degree from the south bank polytechnic i noticed that people who uh, also got a degree from the South Bank Polytechnic, changed the degree to one from the <laughs> South Bank University when it became a university. But uh, I don't do that because, in fact, um, in those days, the Council for National Academic Awards governed non-university higher education institutions really, really uh, rigorously. So I think the state, the, the, the rigor of the award was inversely proportional to the status of the institution. <laughs> nice. So... Um, I was doing a, a, one of the modules was on problem solving and I was doing a, a, a session with a class probably they were what we'd now call year year 10 maybe year 9 but I wanted to explore students 
problem solving attempts. And I wanted to give them a real problem. So at the time we worked in a building on just off the Westway in West London, and it was basically an eight story cuboid. So it was eight floor, eight levels of schools, corridors down the middle, very unimaginative design. Sure. And so I gave these kids, the whole class, working in groups of three or four, the task of designing fire escape routes for every room in the school. Oh, nice. Yeah. So I thought, you know, I, I thought they might come up with things like um, odd numbered floors, walk to the north, even numbered floors, walk to the south because there were big stairwells at either end of the building. Yes. Um, so, you know, I was going around helping them. And of course, I was recording what's happening on the tables so I could transcribe them for my master's thesis. <laughs> And this group of girls were designing sprinkler systems. <laughs> and I was I was beginning to get a bit panicky at this point because they weren't <laughs> doing the task that I set them. And I could see my my uh, coursework going down because <laughs> they just weren't doing the problem. And um, but, you know, I, I did actually let them finish this. But then when I, I realized and this is really important in terms of my own development. I realized that they had deposed my problem. I'd proposed them a problem about fire in schools. And I'd shown, I told them to think about this in terms of fire escapes. Yes. Well, what they'd done is say, what's the real problem here? <laughs> it's fire in schools. So they were designing sprinkler systems. So they'd taken my problem and taken a step back and say, let's not solve this problem at the surface. Let's go to the root cause of this problem. <laughs> and... You know that real, and that's that's been a really strong theme in my intellectual work since then, is that you can't really student centre the problem solving unless you student centre the assessment, and too often we pretend we are saying to students we want your ideas and your work, but it still has to be evaluated by the teachers' ideas and prejudices about what counts as quality work. So I think there's a fundamental tension between student centering learning activities in the classroom and students centering the assessment and that's the and that's been a big theme in my work um for the last 25 30 years that's that's fascinating that dylan and i wonder this this is something i've i feel quite strongly about this this whole emphasis on on real world mathematics and making sure we bring the real world into the classroom so students can relate to it and engage more and so on and, I, and i've often been skeptical about this and i think you've touched upon something there that if you try and bring the real world in, which was like a fascinating um, idea for a lesson that with, with the fire escapes, as soon as you start to bring the real world in, students start to bring in other real world ideas and notions that they've got that, that perhaps don't fit into your kind of tightly crafted lesson and the direction you, you, you wanted it to go. And I, I often think that's the danger that once things start to become too real world, then it's very hard for you as a teacher to predict where it's going to go, which isn't necessarily a bad thing, but at the same same time it means that you can't direct the students to to the skills that you wanted them to develop throughout the lesson D does that make sense absolutely and i think that i've written about this um I, there's an article i wrote many years ago now called relevance as MacGuffin in mathematics <laughs> education <laughs> and for those of you who aren't film buffs a MacGuffin is a plot device that motivates people to go chasing each other around the countryside so in um, the 39 steps the MacGuffin is actually the secret submarine plans and Alfred Hitchcock, uh, the filmmaker, was a very firm believer that you shouldn't spend much time on the MacGuffin. The MacGuffin is not that important. It just gives people an excuse for running after each other. And so I actually wrote this article called Relevance as MacGuffin in Mathematics Education, where I argued that we were actually kind of pretending to bring the real world in the classroom. And, you know, there's an example I, I love to quote. 
that is actually in an everyday maths textbook from the 1980s, which is meant for low achievers in mathematics. And one of the questions is, picture of a man drinking a pint of beer in a pub. Alan drank three-eighths of his pint of beer. How much is left? And I was thinking, yeah, that's exactly thinking about as he's drinking his beer and it just this i call this bogus maths or, or maths maths looking for somewhere to happen yes so the idea is that the teacher's already decided what the maths is and they're just looking for a, some kind of um real context to pretend this is real and i think that it's it's largely a mistake i think there's a there's a kernel of sense here which is uh, exemplified in Hans Freudenthal's approach to what he called realistic mathematics education. So all maths teachers use metaphors. When we're teaching negative numbers, we might use positive and negative bank balances. We might use heights above and below sea level. We might use um, temperatures. And so I think using physical situations to, if you like, capitalize on the cognitive equipment the students have already developed to create analogies that students might use to reason effectively with mathematics is fine. But too often, um, students get distracted because they know more about the situation. Joe Bowler wrote a very nice article called When Do Girls Prefer Football to Fashion? <laughs> and what she found was that the same task put in a football context, girls did better than it was in a, in a fashion context because the girls knew too much about fashion. Ah, yes. And they used their knowledge about fashion and it took them away from the mathematics the teacher expected them to use. <laughs> so, so for me, you know, it's, it, obviously making things realistic for students, making think they think that this might be useful is a way of getting students engaged. But we have to be very careful that we're not just invoking this idea of mathematics looking for somewhere to happen that's very interesting Don't that's superb that well what i'd like to move on to now is is an article that you wrote recently um at the time of recording anyway in the tes and i, th- I thought it was just perfect as a, as a kind of structure for the middle part of this interview and the article was called the nine things every teacher should know and i'm going to put a link to it just as as i'm going to put a link to everything we discussed today in, in the show notes for the podcast but i just wondered if i could just pick out a, a few of these that caught my eye and if you could just elaborate a little bit on on what you meant by them if that's all right um the the first one, which I thought was a, a lovely way of phrasing it, nobody cares how much you know until they know how much you care. Could you just talk to us a little bit about that, please, Dylan? Yeah, well, first, it's a quote, but we don't know who from. It's generally attributed to Theodore Roosevelt, uh, the American president. But it's about this idea that relationships are at the heart of effective teaching. And so the most important thing is to establish good relationships with your students. When I used to run a PGCE course, I used to give a lecture to the students at the beginning of the course, and I said to the students, I know that you're worried about whether your students will respect you. And I would say, I have a different worry. I worry about whether you respect your students. Mm, yes. And I think that t- too many teachers don't have enough respect for the children that they're teaching as being human beings with all the rights that human beings should be accorded. They're, they're small only partially formed human beings to be sure but the fact is these are people and ultimately if you treat your students as people if they get the idea that you care about what they think teaching them will be so much easier yes 
I think you're right, you're absolutely right. And listeners of this podcast will know that we we I had an interview with an NQT called Beth Lilly, and she took that as a kind of biggest thing she'd learnt in her first year that developing the relationships with kids was far more important than anything else she did that year because it's it's and it's it's in the classroom, it's having those little conversations with students in the corridors and so on, just showing the students that you have an interest in them above and beyond them just being a number in your mark book or whatever just makes a huge difference. So yeah, absolutely, that's. That's fantastic, that, Dylan. Um, I should actually say that um, the title was not the title I chose. Um, <laughs> I don't, I'm not sure these are nine things that every teacher should know. What I called it was things I wish I had known when I started teaching. Yes. So it's very interesting that your comments from Beth were very similar. You know, what do you wish you'd known? And, and, and so this list is really what I wish I had known. Fantastic. I, I, make, I, I make no claims about whether they're useful to anybody else. <laughs> well, I'm sure they are, Dylan. That, that's superb. Um, your next three are all about kind of learning and memory. So I'm just going to read these out as a bundle. Um, yeah. And yeah, I wonder if you could just talk a little bit about this. So firstly, learning is a change in long-term memory. Then you've got memory is the residue of thought. And finally, the one that really struck me is learning requires forgetting. Could you just talk to us a little bit about those, please, Dylan? Well, so the first one is really the de- definition that Paul Kirshner proposed, as I mentioned earlier. Yes. So if students learn something today, they've forgotten tomorrow, they haven't learned anything. Yes. So we must be we must be sure that you know, we are teaching for the long term. You know, this is a marathon, not a sprint. Mm-hmm. Or as John Mason puts it, teaching takes place in time, but learning takes place over time. Yes. So this obsession with lesson observation and, you know, people say, I want to see progress in a lesson. Well, <laughs> you don't. You just don't see progress in a lesson (laughs) you might see something that might begin to be the seeds of progress but anybody who tries to evaluate a teacher on the basis of a single lesson is bound to produce inaccurate results (laughs) can i just ask dylan at that stage because i i completely agree with you but what are the implications there How, how how should we judge teachers is it is it simply we can judge them based on their results over a sustained period of time? Is it impossible to judge the quality of teaching based on a snapshot in, in a lesson? Well, Heather Hill's work suggests that to get a reliable, not even an accurate, but just a reliable rating um, of teachers, you know, it's reliable in the sense that if you did it tomorrow, you'd get the same result. You would need to see each teacher teaching six different classes and have each one rated by five independent observers. You need 30 <laughs> observations just to get a, a dependable assessment of that teacher's performance. <laughs> Unfortunately, um, those predictions don't actually predict how much kids are learning. So people say, let's forget observing teachers. Let's just do value added. Let's test yes. the kids at the beginning of the year, test the kids at the end of the year and see which kids are making most progress. Sure. But it turns out to be impossible, too, for two reasons. <laughs> One is that the statistics gets very complicated. And one beautiful paper by Dan Goldhaber and his associates looked at value added and they put teachers into batches of 20%, best 20%, next 20%, middle 20%, next 20%, bottom 20%. And they used two statistical models. For those of you interested, it's a random effects model and a fixed effects model. 9% of the teachers who were rated as the very best teachers in one model were actually rated as the very worst in the other model. So even, so even value added can't give you an accurate assessment <laughs> of how much progress kids have made. But even value added, um, even if we could do it, it wouldn't be any good because most of what gets measured is not the stuff that's most important for long-term development. So some teachers may not get good 
results this year, but their kids are well prepared for next year's work. Yes. Because if they prepare by getting kids to think about problem solving and independence and autonomy, they may not cover all the skills that students are meant to develop this year, but their students are much better prepared for next year's work. (laughs) And so what's interesting is that there are some teachers who don't look good in, in, in the year that they're teaching the kids, but if you look at those kids four years later, those kids have made more progress because of that teacher's contributions three years earlier. Yes. So, so basically, so, so I now know, and, I'm, and I've spent a long time on this problem, I now know that I can't reliably evaluate teaching by looking at it or doing value added. More importantly, I now know that nobody else can do it either. Now, this, is, <laughs> this is paradoxical because everybody in education thinks they can spot good teaching when yes. they see it. Yes. And at the extremes, we can. We can, you know, we can be 95% confident that a teacher who looks very, very good is not, in fact, very, very bad. We can do that. And we can be 95% confident that a teacher looks very, very bad is not, in fact, very, very good. Yes. But the margin of error for teacher observation, teacher evaluation is so great that I think it's simply unjustifiable. I think we ought to be forgetting teacher evaluation and saying, I don't care how good you are, you can be better. What would you like to get better at? That's the conversation that every supervisor should be having with teachers. What would you like to get better at? And how can I, as your line manager, support you in getting better at the things that you think will have the biggest impact for your students? Flipping out. That is uh, the music to my ears, that, Dylan. That's, yeah, absolutely super. But somewhat, but, uh, somewhat radical. <laughs> and, somewhat. Also, and also because, I mean, the other side to the coin is that, one, you, you, um, I think you've picked up on it um, earlier on with something you said, that it's very hard to judge what, what learning's going on, even in the short term, um, in a lesson. If students are thinking... Um, just sat down thinking hard it's very very hard to judge that versus it's quite easy to spot them running around cutting up a jigsaw and at the end of it they've stuck something on a wall that looks quite impressive and even more so to the non-subject specialist and that's often the way um, observations happen in schools where whether it be a, a modern foreign language teacher observing a maths lesson or a maths teacher observing a history lesson and I know when I watch other teachers um, even maths teachers I find it hard to pick up on the subtleties but certainly when I watch watch um, other other uh, subjects that aren't mathematics and all it takes and I've seen this so many times and I'm sure you have too Dylan is a couple of bad lesson observations and a teacher's confidence is destroyed and that and that's one of the main reasons so many teachers are leaving the profession just because they're, they're being they're being told within two months of starting the career right you're on a you're on a support program now because you've had a couple of dodgy observations and before you know it they think forget this it's, it's not worth all the stress and the anguish so I think I think you're absolutely right taking the pressure off by reducing or removing these single lesson observations it it just improved the profession so so much yeah well so i have one question for every teacher do you need to get better if they say yes let's work together if they say no i think they should be fired (laughs) i think there is no place in state schools for teachers who do not think they need to get better because those teachers when they fail and we always fail as teachers because teaching is so hard and we have such high hopes for, for our students you know that's that's the ridiculous thing about teachers Every teacher is just ridiculously optimistic. Yes. You've taught this lesson 10 times so far in your career and never have more than half the kids got it. But <laughs> this time is going to be different. This time, every single kid is going to get factorizing quadratics. And it's that optimism. You know, and we fail. We fail all the time. The, the good teachers say, what else can I do to get better? The bad teachers say, what can you expect from these kids? 
Yeah, I think I think you're absolutely right, and I, I think a, a lot of it though comes from the person doing the obs- observing or, or the line manager, because it's very easy to to write down on a piece of paper you need to improve your pace or you need to make sure the kids make progress and all this these vague meaningless targets. But as you say, if the person being observed turns around and says, "What can you help me with?" or "I need help with this. What should I do?" It's, it's it's quite difficult for the person who's who's being the observer, and I think that that's that's a big part of the problem, in in my opinion. It, it's it's the people doing the observation, either not being willing or not being able or not having the time to help the teacher, if that makes sense. But we degenerate into these really silly things like pace. Oh, I know. What does pace I know. mean? Oh, I know. I know. It's, Absolutely it's not, meaningless. It's not speed. It's <laughs> certainly not speed. You know, basically, to me, pace is making sure as much of the lesson is spent minds on. And that often means slowing things down rather than speeding them up. Let me give you one example. One of the interesting findings from the TIMS research, comparative studies of classrooms, is that in Japan, teachers take very seriously their board work. They actually have to practice their board work. Bansho is what it's called, which is the study of board work. And 80% of what a teacher writes on a board is still there at the end of the lesson. Because the idea is the, the board becomes a summary of the development of the lesson. So students are encouraged to reflect back and see how what they're talking about right now relates to what was talked about earlier. Uh, Whereas in England, we tend to whip images in front of kids yes. with an interactive whiteboard to direct their attention onto the thing that they're focusing on. Yes. Well, actually, sometimes the thing they should be focusing on is how this connects to something you did 20 minutes ago. So you know, this whole idea of, of directing kids' attention and engagement is, in my view, actually antithetical to good teaching. That's very interesting. No, absolutely. And again, that, that, that's linked to this, this next thing. This learning requires forgetting. Could you just talk to me a little bit about that, Dylan? What, what did you mean by that? Right. Well, so let, let's take the three together. So learning is a change in long-term memory. Yes. If you can't... You can't remember it in six weeks' time. You haven't really learned anything. And what the research seems to suggest is that the harder you work, the more you struggle in the learning task, the better the long-term learning. So this is why Ofsted's current focus on clarity and smooth lessons and things looking wonderfully um, straightforward is actually not just unhelpful, it's actually wrong. (laughs) So Robert Bjork, who's probably the world's leading researcher of memory, has shown that the quality of performance in the learning task is inversely proportional to the quality of long-term memory. So basically, the more students struggle in the learning task, the better the long-term memory. Right. And the less they struggle, the less they remember. So that's why memory is a residue of thought. And it seems like the best time to restudy something is just before you've completely forgotten it. So the idea is that If students learn something today and they revise it tomorrow, it looks very effective because it feels very familiar. Turns out that that kind of revision, revising what you've been doing straight after you've just done it, is completely useless because the retrieval strength is high. It's very familiar to you. The best time to restudy things is just on the point of completely forgetting it (laughs) because then you practice retrieval. And what happens is you'll, you'll forget that as well, but the forgetting the after the second relearning and flatter still after the third relearning and flatter still after the fourth relearning. Flipping heck. No, that makes that makes perfect sense, that. Um, what are the implications there then, Dylan, for 
kind of I know it's a bit of a broad question but for for curriculum design and and assessments and so on because as you'll know yourself very much the way things go is is students are taught two weeks on fractions they'll have an assessment at fra on fractions possibly at the end of that two weeks and then maybe they'll have a couple of maybe a fractions question at some point in their end of year exam or possibly their end of term exam but are you saying it should be more kind of rigorous testing at spaced intervals three weeks after you finish the topic six weeks after you finish the topic and so on how, how should it work what are the implications from this well first of all we shouldn't have two weeks on fractions so the yes. idea is have one or two days on fractions and then one or two days on something else and come back to fractions probably two or three weeks later but the important point is the, the optimum spacing will depend on the rate of forgetting and we don't really know what that is precisely but you know we could do some fairly straightforward experiments to figure out what's the optimum spacing for the maths curriculum we currently have the second thing to point out is that practice testing is really good because it practices retrieval now it's one of the lowest hanging fruit there is if we tested our kids more frequently they would remember more of what they've been taught but of course students don't like being tested <laughs> but the key way out of this dilemma is to remember that students don't gain any additional benefit from being tested when a mark is put in a teacher's mark book Students get two benefits from testing. They get a benefit when they are forced to retrieve things for a test, and they get a second benefit when they find out whether what they did was correct, because then there's this thing called the hypercorrection effect. If you thought you were right and you're actually wrong and you're corrected, you remember it for longer than if you actually happen to get it right by guesswork. Right. So the best person to mark a test is the person who just took it. So I think what I would like to see is curriculum sequencing where you actually move around the topics um, one or two lessons on one thing and then something else and a, and a scheme for that um, over the whole course of the year but then synoptic testing so the idea is that every two weeks or so students should be tested on everything they've learned up to that point so the first two weeks will obviously be just on the first two weeks but the second test after four weeks would be um, on everything they've learned on the whole four weeks yes but again and, and then every half term maybe you have a test where the teacher marks it and a mark goes in a mark book but i think the idea is that we should actually have more self-testing and build that into the program as being part of checking and making progress got it Fant fantastic perfect well can i just pick two more of these things out please Dylan? these are these are two mm -hmm. that really caught my eye that the first one is this the only thing that matters about feedback is what students do with it and the reason i bring this up is because it's been a constant theme on this podcast about the amount that teachers have to mark and and what various teachers are expected to do and i had a big debate well a big rant on the last session on the last episode with a, a teacher called ed southall who um was very much a opposed to as I am this whole idea that teachers mark in red um, and then the uh, student responds in green and then the teacher remarks in purple and it's this never-ending kind of feedback cycle that is just killing teachers in terms of workload what is what makes effective feedback Dylan what what do teachers need to be focusing on well I think the general finding is that the research on feedback is not much help we might talk about that later because most feedback hasn't been designed, most feedback studies haven't been designed with classrooms in mind, they've been done in laboratories. But I think the big idea here is that if your feedback is getting students to do more of the things that you want them to do, then it's good feedback, it's as simple as that. And if your feedback is getting less of the things that you want students to do, it's bad feedback. 
So that's why I say the only thing that matters is the feedback is what students do with it. But I think that in mathematics, we have a specific problem, which is that most teachers seem to think that the purpose of feedback is improving the work the student has done. Yes. And my view is the purpose of feedback is to improve the student, not the work. So the idea of feedback is what do students learn that they can take forward into their next piece of work. So teachers just correcting things or t- t- you know, is not that helpful. So, for example, I-, I think the most general strategy, I would say, is that we should make feedback into detective work. That's why I like teachers saying things like five of these equations are wrong. You find them. You fix them. Yes. Nice. So, so, so the idea is that feedback should be lead to intellectual. Now, that course that does meet that does look like triple marking because the teacher writes something, the student then responds in some way, and then the teacher checks the student has responded. Mm. But the idea is that feedback should be more work for the student than for the teacher. Yes. And the second thing is, if feedback, I mean, let's face it, feedback is one-to-one tuition. No teacher I know can mark two books at the same time. So feedback is one-to-one tuition. And yet most of us as teachers throw it away because we don't make time in class for students to respond to our feedback. Yes. So I would say if feedback is important enough, important enough to spend time doing one-to-one instruction, one-to-one teaching with students, it's important enough to take time for students to respond to your comments in class. So I would say as a general rule, don't mark students' books unless the next time they're in the classroom with you, they're responding to what you've written. Fantastic. And, and then you check. And then you go on. No, 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 please, please come in. What I was going to say, and then you check up on their responses when you're walking around the classroom, when they're doing their responses. So again, it's it's minimizing the amount of, of bureaucratic work. Um, the other thing is, you know, teachers spend so much time marking in order to prove they've been looking at the students' work. <laughs> yes. So often, when I give feedback, uh, I st- you know, I used to give students feedback, but then I say, go back to your seat and make a couple of notes about what we just talked about. Yes. It has three benefits. One is it develops literacy skills. Second, it creates a mnemonic about the substance of the conversation. But thirdly, and most importantly, it creates a record of the interaction, but it's the student who writes the record. Yes. Nice. Keeping the teacher's minimum, keep teacher's work to a minimum. That's well, that, that always goes down well on this podcast, Dylan. So that, that is fantastic. That no, absolutely brilliant. That and the, the final one I just wanted to pick up on is, is this effective group work requires individual accountability. And the reason this one caught my eye is, is group works a, a real divisive um, kind of concept amongst teachers. I certainly find some teachers will do it very regularly. Most lessons will get kids kind of collaborating together, whether it's in pairs or in fours and so on. And some teachers will blindly swear against it and say no group work is not for me so i wonder what what's your take on on the concept of group work and and when's it at its most effective well the tragedy of group work is that many teachers say they do it but they don't do it in the way that the research shows clearly it needs to be done if it's to be effective so most of the group work that i see in schools in england is less effective than teachers standing in front of the class and talking at them Now, that's a tragedy because we actually know what it is we need to be doing to make group work effective. There are two things, group goals, so the students are working as a group, not just in a group, and the best learning efforts of every individual must be needed for the group to be successful. So one student falling down on the job has to screw it up for everybody. Yes, okay. And most teachers are not willing, most teachers are not willing to frame their group work tasks in that way. 
So they frame the group work task in a way that allows two or three students, often girls, to do the work for the whole group. <laughs> and if you do that, you do not get the benefits of group work. There's a math teacher in Brazil named Roberto Baldino, and he teaches high school algebra using a technique he calls solidarity assimilation groups. Students work in teams of four to work through a chapter of a textbook. The teams are changed every week, but every week the students work in a team of four to master a chapter in a textbook. And when they think they've mastered the chapter, they tell the teacher, and every student in the group individually does a test on that chapter. And everybody in the group is awarded the score of the lowest scoring member of the group. Flipping act, nice. And I, you know, that's a beautiful way of building in individual accountability. Now, yeah. many teachers say, we can't do that. <laughs> but we do it We do it in, in football. Yes. One student missing a penalty scores, harms the whole team's chance of winning. We do it in music. One child in the orchestra hitting a bad note spoils everybody's yes. performance. So I think if we're serious about group work, we should actually build in individual accountability. And if we're not prepared to do that, we shouldn't pretend we're doing group work. So that's the way out of the dilemma you just posed. Most teachers, I think, you know, if, if you can't don't have the time to structure group work effectively, you'd be better off just teaching from the front. That's what the research shows very clearly. That's fascinating. That's brilliant, that Dylan. Superb. Well, that leads us quite nicely onto the, this next section, and that's that's research. Now, obviously, uh, as you've spoke about when you told us about your career today, you've you've been heavily involved in in research, specifically um, assessments. And I wonder if you were to pick out one, um, and I know it's a very difficult one, but what what would you consider to be the single most important part of research that that you personally have been involved in in your career? I would say it's the King's Medway Oxfordshire Formative Assessment Program or project. Um, so Paul Black and I in 1998 published an extensive review of research where we showed that formative assessment seemed to have a bigger impact on student achievement than just about anything else you could do. And then we got a grant from the Nuffield Foundation to try this out with teachers. So we worked with 24 teachers, 12 math teachers, 12 science teachers, to try to work out what this would look like in classrooms. And then we asked teachers, you've heard about this stuff about formative assessment, what would you like to work on? So each teacher chose which techniques they wanted to try out. And then I met with each of the teachers individually and I said, so which group are you gonna, which classroom are you gonna work with? So they chose the techniques, they chose the class. I said, what's the best class to compare this class with? So each teacher made up their own mini experiment. Ah, nice. And uh, we, we and then I did the data analysis. I then aggregated the results across a um, across all the teachers using a statistical technique called the jacks, jackknife. Uh, so it's quite innovative, not not using an off-the-peg methodology. And I used lots of exploratory data analysis techniques to write this up. And we published it, and it's actually the most cited journal article in the journal it was cited in over a 25-year period. Okay, so I, I think it's a, I think it's important because a we showed that when teachers do formative assessment kids get better results. It's important because it showed that was true even when these kids were doing national curriculum tests, GCSEs and A-levels. It also suggested a model of research where t researchers collaborate with teachers, where the teachers decide how they're going to take this research on board. Yes. And so we start from where the teacher is rather than imposing a model on the teachers. So I think it was important methodologically in showing a way in which researchers can work with teachers and still publish things that have scientific legitimacy. But it's also important because I can now say 
we we know that when you do formative assessment, your students will score higher on GCSEs and A-levels, which in this climate is, of course, very important. Oh, absolutely. In this, yeah, results-driven world we live in, Dylan, that, that's the absolute key to it. Well, fantastic. Well, I wonder, kind of related to that, is there a piece of research that springs to mind that when you read it, and it can be one or, or one that you kind of were involved in yourself or one that you just read, that when you read the findings, you thought, flipping heck, I did not see that coming. That is that has gone against what I thought. Is there anything that stands out as surprising to you? Well, I think there are several research studies that are surprising because on a single experiment, people get surprising results. Yes. But that's because results are quirky, statistical flukes or whatever. I think the one that really took me back and the one I still cite all the time is a 1996 research review by two guys at Rutgers University in um, New Jersey called Kluger and Denisi. So Kluger and Denisi decided to track down a copy of every single feedback research they could find, study they could find. They went, this was published in 1996 and found over 3,000 research reports on the effects of feedback. So this is covering every single study on feedback from 1905 to 1995. Flipping They found that some of these studies weren't well designed. So some of these studies weren't well designed. They lacked a control group. They didn't have um, proper measurement of before and after. Yep. The research design didn't allow you to identify the effects of feedback as opposed to, for example, target setting. They discovered that out of the 3,000, only 131 of these studies were pure studies on feedback. <sighs> so that was quite surprising. Yes. But what was even more surprising was that although on average feedback improved achievement, 231 of the 607 effect sizes they found were negative. In other words, in almost 40% <laughs> of the studies, feedback lowered performance. You're joking. Not just, had, not just had no effect, actually made things worse. Why you would have been that? better off shutting up than giving the feedback. <laughs> That's incredible. It is incredible. And so what these guys actually pointed out was that none of these feedback studies had looked at what the recipient had done with the feedback. And they said, anybody who tries to do a meta-analysis on the effects of feedback is probably wasting their time because what we should be looking at is what does this do to the student? So even if the feedback is effective in raising achievement but makes the student more dependent on the feedback for future success, that's probably not a good thing. So that's where it was in reading this study that I became clear in my own mind about good feedback. Good feedback gets us more of what we want. Bad feedback gets us less of what we want. And that's the important thing. What students do with the feedback is what matters. What it, and what feedback does to students, that's important. Everything else is pretty unimportant. So, for <laughs> example, you know, teachers are told feedback should be specific. No, it mustn't be specific. If feedback is too specific to the task students have just done, they're not going to be able to apply it to a different task. We're told that feedback should be immediate. Well, that doesn't doesn't seem to be true. There are studies that show that feedback should be delayed and to be most, most effective on occasions. So for me, you know, you know, feedback shouldn't be too negative. Well, unfortunately, if a student has done something that's just plain wrong, I think <laughs> it's just bizarre to pretend that it's okay. And I think ultimately, you know, if a student's doing a piece of work where you know they haven't tried, I think it should be okay for the teacher to say to the student, particularly if it's high school, if you can't be bothered to put any effort into doing a decent first draft of this, I can't be bothered to give you any feedback on it. 
<laughs> you know, I think sometimes the most effective feedback is a metaphorical kick of the backside. <laughs> so, so that, you know, the trouble is that, that we've, as a result of reading the study, I realized that most of these kinds of homely messages we were giving to teachers about feedback were just, just wrong, just inconsistent with what we know about the research on feedback. And that it was really kind of a watershed. And you know, 20 years later, I'm still citing this study, and people are still not getting the message. People are still trying to work out, you know, does feedback work? Does feedback not work? What kinds of feedback works? I don't think we'll ever know. Teachers need to know their students, know when to push, know when to back off, and students need to trust teachers. If your students don't think you know what you're talking about or have their best interests at heart, they're not going to invest the time they need to invest to take the feedback on board. That's what the research of Kluger and Denisi showed. It's just one of the most important pieces of research that's ever been done in the educational arena. Flipping heck. Well, that's required reading for all listeners uh, to this podcast. Uh, no, no, it's not, actually. No, no. Oh. Don't. <laughs> it's, it's, it's a terrible paper to read. All right. <laughs> it's awful. It is just, it's just ridiculously dense and complex. Read the last page. That's what you do. Fantastic, and we'll come on to uh, some some perhaps more readable uh, things later on, Dylan. But yeah, okay, we'll we'll put that one aside then. Um, look, I I could ask you questions for hours and hours and hours, but what I'd like to do for this next section is just hand over to to some of our, uh, my Twitter followers, and I've picked out three questions for you that um, that kind of caught my eye, and I'll be intrigued as to your responses, especially to this first one, Dylan. This is from Mark Hawley on Twitter, and he wants to know how to upskill the vast majority of teachers who simply don't have the time or energy to read blogs do twitter or listen to podcasts now the first thing i'll say is mark's probably not going to hear the response to this because he's not going to listen to this podcast but what do you say there because i think this is a bit of a problem that there's a there's a community of teachers out there who are incredibly passionate and are on twitter all the time they're writing blogs they're reading blogs and so on they're listening to podcasts like this and so on but there are also teachers who for whatever reason simply don't have time to kind of do this extra research and put this time in outside of the classroom and if that is a sizable minority, which I personally uh, believe it is, how, how are we going to upskill them? How are we going to get the message across of, of all these things that are effective? Well, of course, it depends what kinds of skill they lack. And you need to decide that before you try to decide how to upskill them. But I would say that sharing good questions with teachers is the best form of professional development. So we've tried having teachers being given worksheets and lesson plans, and teachers tell us that they're not very useful. But what is really useful is what Philip Sadler calls distractor-driven multiple-choice questions. So the idea is that the incorrect answers relate to well-known misconceptions that children have about these particular topics, and enables teachers to make smarter decisions about what to do next. So I call this often a, a, a kind of just-in-time subject knowledge development. So it's helping give young teachers the wisdom of old teachers about all the misconceptions that kids have around things like the definition of the median or Pythagoras. So it's, and what's what we found is the most cost-effective way of, of putting an old head on young shoulders. It's to give teachers really high quality questions. 
Vlas, fan- yeah, fantastic. And again, obviously, with my bias, the diagnostic questions hat yeah. on. I think that that's the way to do it. There's, if you, I, I've often said that a good lesson isn't necessarily a good lesson for everybody, but a good question is a good question for everybody. And it exactly. doesn't, mat- doesn't matter your teaching style, doesn't matter what time of day it is or anything like that. All those things that can affect whether a lesson is successful or not doesn't apply for a question. A good question is a good question for anybody, any time of the day any class any situation yeah no that's that's perfect Dylan um, I wonder if I could next ask you a question from Mr. Taylor Maths and he says would Dylan re- now um, I must say a little uh, little warning before this don't feel any obligation just because you're on this podcast to, to uh, mention diagnostic questions at any stage here but he says would Dylan recommend any new technologies for AFL or do mini whiteboards still reign supreme I think many whiteboards don't reign supreme because they make the teacher's job more complex. So sometimes you do want to get a written response from students. Yes. But I like multiple choice questions because it makes the teacher's data processing task simpler. If you have students writing four words on each mini whiteboard, you've given yourselves over a a really hard task. You've got a hundred words to read. Yes. It's a really complex data processing task. So I would stick with multiple choice questions. You can buy a set of classroom clickers, these electronic voting systems. I wouldn't. The people who sell these systems say you can record every student's answer. That does not sound like a plus to me. (laughs) The idea that every single wrong answer I have ever given in a maths classroom is recorded in an Excel spreadsheet until the end of time sounds distinctly creepy to me as if George Orwell's 1984 has finally arrived. That's why I like finger voting. Because what students love about finger voting, it's what they also like about mini whiteboards, is that as soon as the answer is erased, there's no record of their failure. Yes. But the important thing about finger voting is students hardly ever forget to bring their fingers. <laughs> it's Yeah, my only concern there is sometimes they, they shove up one finger and they're not voting for Adil, and that's my only problem uh, sometimes with finger voting. But no, yeah, absolutely, that that's great advice. And final question, and this is from uh, Jambo Hendo, and it's quite a broad question, this, and uh, it might, might be difficult to answer, but just give it your best shot. What do you see as the top three practical things teachers can do to improve student learning? And it doesn't have to be three, Dylan. What, what are just some, some practical practical things that you would say to teachers that, that could improve student learning? I think it comes back to some of the things we've already talked about. One is the responses of confident students are bad guides to what's happening in the rest of the kids' heads. So just make sure that you're not always getting feedback from the students who find this easy. That to me is more important than just about anything else. And that's incidentally why I think it's right for Paul Black and myself to call our work formative assessment because it's about the quality of the evidence. What students learn is not predictable, but good teaching, as David Asubel pointed out 50 years ago, good teaching starts from where the students are. So formative assessment is all about finding out where students are before we move them on. And different students will be in different places. Now I know that makes teaching more difficult, but the point is it makes it better. So for me, it's all about start from where the student is. 
Fantastic, superb. Well, um, just as we move on to the final section, just before you, I ask you for your big three um, to direct listeners to, you, you're obviously an incredibly well-read man, Dylan, and obviously been involved in lots of research yourself. And you, you mentioned before when I tried to recommend an article to read that it wasn't a particularly uh, easy-to-digest one for teachers. So I wonder if you could just pick out a few, and as many as you want, whether they be books, whether they be articles, research papers, whatever you like, that you'd recommend um, maths teachers to read and what I'll do is I'll, I'll get links to these and I'll share them in, in the show notes so what are some things that spring to mind I think I'd like to pick two books I think for teachers that are at opposite extremes one is Leaping Ma's book about um, the, the, the mathematical knowledge of Chinese teachers versus American teachers and I think that Britain is probably intermediate between those two extremes but just the importance of mathematical knowledge uh, a very different take on the world of mathematics is um, the work of Joe Bowler. And you could read her latest one, Mathematical Mindsets, but I still like the case study she did of two schools um, in, in England, uh, which are very different approaches. Um, and so I think it's just a really interesting piece of work about, um, it, it's about, it's called Experiencing School Mathematics, I think. I can't remember what the subtitle is, because I think it's actually changed. But that, that, that idea of, um, you know, students who are really engaged in project work, often for only 10 minutes a lesson, very low levels of time on task, actually made more progress than kids who are doing mindless, boring math stuff. So I think that, you know, there's not going to be a single solution here. And those two books, I think, provide extremes, if you like, of um, the work on, on different approaches to maths teaching and what we might do about improving it. Fantastic. And if I could just squeeze in two last questions from me, Dylan, if that's mm-hmm. all right. Um, the first one is, would you have any advice for people listening here who are, who are leading a maths department? Because we do get a lot of heads of department who listen to this. Anything that springs to mind that, that would help them to either run the department more effectively or, or help their teachers out more effectively or assess students more effectively? Anything that springs to mind, practical takeaway for a head of department who might be listening? I think... What we're learning from the research on leadership is is that there are very, very few all-purpose general rules. I think the people who are successful in one context are completely ineffective in a different context. So I think the most important lesson that I learned is that any responsibility within a school, whether whether you're in charge of Key Stage 3 or in charge of the whole maths department, your primary task is to create a learning environment for the teachers that you lead. So the most effective leaders are those who create a learning environment for those that they lead. In the same way that no teacher can do the learning for her students, but she can create an environment in which her students learn. No head of department can do the learning for her teachers, but she can create an environment in which each teacher thrives and grows. That would be my most important piece of advice. And that's fantastic, Lauren. And uh, what kind of things would help create that environment? Are you thinking, in kind of, excuse me, in kind of departmental meetings and stuff? Is there something that you like to see there, or is there something in the math staff room, or is it what, what, what is it that helps create this environment? I think just creating the culture whereby you are always meant to be learning. Yes. So I think it should be the most natural thing in the world for the head of maths to ask every, every teacher in the department, "What are you working on right now? Yes. What are you working on getting better at?" To, to actually share example, I was in so and so's lesson, I saw this wonderful 
technique. If you want to find out for, find out more, go and talk to her. So it's about this notion of embarrassed to talk about that, but just the whole idea that teachers in this department are getting better, and that's that's and then the converse of that is challenging those teachers who say I don't need to get any better because I get good results. So this the, the normalization of progress and improvement. The idea is we're getting better, not because they're not good enough, but because we can be even better. Yes, fantastic. And the last question from me before I hand over to you for, for your big three is, um, what would you include on a PGCE or teacher training course that you think's missing now, Dylan? In a word, micro-teaching. So I don't think teachers get enough time to practice teaching small groups of students before they have to teach whole classes. So when I run a PGC course, one of the things I try to experiment with, and it was very difficult because there's so little time in college, but one of the things we tried to do was to have teachers getting the chance to learn how to explain things to children in small groups. Typically, we'd have two teachers working with four students so that you learn how to be a teacher before you learn the techniques of crowd control. It seems to me that too many teachers start with the crowd control and therefore they make compromises too early in their careers. So that would be the thing that I would want to stress. Learn how to, edu- learn how to educate kids, then learn how to manage crowds for them. Super. Very, very practical. Very good advice. Adam. That's excellent. Well, it's come to the time in the show now where I hand over to you for your big three. And again, I'll put links to these in the show notes. But I wonder if you could just um, direct listeners to three and they could be websites, could be blog posts, anything you like that, that you think our listeners should check out. Well, the first one is this rather obscure site known as diagnosticquestions.com. I don't know if you've heard of it. <laughs> I'll but, send you I the tether in really the post. <laughs> Thanks, Dylan. <laughs> yeah. But I, I, th- I think, it, I mean, you know, it really is the most exciting development in, in maths education for many years. So, I, you know, I, I think it's absolutely superb. I think that's where we should be putting our efforts into sharing, sharing our, our ideas. The second is Twitter. You know, basically... Different people use Twitter in different ways. Just find somebody who uses Twitter in the way that you like. And the third thing I'd do is, to, is as I wanted, I wanted to get different kinds of websites here, I su- suggest the, the Twitter feed or the blogs of a, a British teacher who now lives in Australia called Greg Ashman. And he's doing some very interesting work with um, people like John Sweller in Australia. But he's looking at the role of knowledge in teaching mathematics, the role of automaticity and things like that. So his posts, which I think go under the heading of filling the pail, because he's resisting the idea that um, education is not filling a pail, it's lighting fires, whatever. Well, he's actually saying knowledge is a really important part of maths, so you need to get good at that. So I recommend his website, his website or his blog is a very provocative source of ideas in maths teaching specifically. Oh, that's fantastic. Great recommendations. And there'll be links to those in the show notes. Well, Dylan, I just want to take this opportunity to, to firstly thank you for joining us tonight. It's been it's been my pleasure. I've, I was talking to my wife before. She, she knows I've been excited about this all day. I've been looking forward to, to it for weeks. So thank you so much. And, and secondly, just thank you for all the wonderful work that you've done. What I what I like about your work is it's, and I think this has come across in the, in the podcast interview here, it's practical takeaways. Often a lot of research and articles I read I think how can I apply that what's my takeaway that that's not set in a classroom environment but this like I'm going to need to re-listen to this podcast about a hundred times because there's just so many actual practical strategies that, that we can all use in our classroom so thank you for your generosity in sharing that and thank you for all your wonderful work you've done throughout your career Dylan thank you it's been fun
So there you have it. There was my interview with Dylan William. I really hope you enjoyed that as much as I did. I just have so much to think about, so many practical takeaways, so much food for thought. And indeed, it was quite difficult to think exactly what I was going to reflect upon in the takeaway segment of this podcast. But I've decided to go for feedback. And the reason is, it's one of those topics that's come up loads in the last few interviews when I've been talking to to practicing teachers. And it just seemed such a good opportunity, having now spoken to essentially someone who's one of the world's leading experts on assessment and feedback and, and has done loads of reading and loads of studies into it. So I wanted to reflect upon our practice, what, what we've started to do in our school, and then just think about how that fits into what Dylan was saying. So I, I discussed it when, when I spoke to Ed Southall in a, in a previous episode that, that we have this kind of marking and feedback cycle that, that's quite popular in a lot of schools where we, we mark the books, then we give some students uh, some feedback and some actions to take, and then we'll remark their work when we take the books in. And what we've really tried to focus on is making the actions that the students take, the responses that they take to our feedback, as useful and beneficial as possible, but also not as onerous on the teacher because as Dylan pointed out himself you want students doing more work than the teacher when it comes to the feedback so two things that we've started doing um, are called convince me that and vi3 treatment and what I've done is I've put the entire collection of these on my website and it's completely free completely open to people and I just thought it'd be nice now just to talk through what we do and, and how I think it fits in with, with what Dylan was saying. So we'll take in, uh, we'll set a homework each week or every two weeks or whatever, a written homework, and we'll take students' books in and we'll mark it. Um, and say, for example, um, a student has made a mistake on a given question. Now, we might put a little correction in there, or now what I'm thinking is I might do what Dylan suggested and, and put a little arrow and say there was a mistake somewhere in these three questions. Can you spot it? Get them plain detective. But either way, we'll, we'll highlight the fact that the student has made a mistake, and then we'll set them some follow-up work based on that same topic. So, um, And that will be called VI3 treatment and what the idea behind this is it's it's kind of a way to give students some purposeful practice that, that lets them consolidate the key skill but at the same time is a little bit more interesting pushes them on a little bit and also isn't a massive job for the teacher to keep coming up with new topics, new questions. So here's a little example from my, from my website. Um, I've clicked on the working with Y equals MX plus C uh, probing questions section of my website and I've gone down to the VI3 treatment. So imagine a student has made a mistake with some kind of straight line graphs question. Um, this, this could be some of the kind of purposeful practice that you may give them after you've corrected their work for them. What about this? Write down the equation of three lines that intersect at the point three minus 2. Write down the equation of three lines that will form an isosceles triangle. Write down the equation of three parallel lines, none of which can start with y equals. Write down the equation of three lines that cross the x-axis at the same point. So you can see they all form the same pattern, that it's right down three of this, three examples. <laughs> That's why we came up with the name. I say we, it was me. VI3 treatment, or VIP treatment. It doesn't really work, but forget it. The concept's hopefully fairly decent. So the idea is you're giving students a single statement and they're coming up with three examples of it 
and the, the aim is that the students can really push themselves that often coming up with that third example is quite difficult they start to see connections it's linked into Don Stewart's idea of this purposeful practice and making generalizations through repeated examples and so on so that's what we'll do for students who've kind of made mistakes to set them follow-up work but what we also do if somebody's got 10 out of 10 it's quite hard sometimes to um, to come up with some follow-up work for them to do so that's where we use a thing called convince me that and it's on the same page the same section of our website and again just to use the y equals mx plus c example here here will be some um, questions that we may write in students books convince me that y equals 3x plus 1 has a gradient of 3 convince me that y equals 2x plus 5 and y equals 2x minus 4 never cross convince me that y equals 4x plus 2 and y equals 6x plus 3 cross the x-axis at the same point convince me that 3x plus 4y equals 12 and y equals minus 3 quarters x plus 3 are in fact the same line and convince me that two straight lines can never cross more than once and the idea is there to get students to think a little bit more deeply about the topic and if possible come up with two or three different ways of convincing you of the same thing so that's the idea there we write that in the book and as I say all those are available on our website there's a link on the podcast page and we're finding that our students are engaging with these it's taken a while and as Dylan says you've got to have some dedicated time in the lessons to do that I really loved what he said when he said there's no point marking the book if you're not going to give the students time to reflect and act upon that marking and that feedback so this is what we're experimenting with we did it a little bit last year and we're going for it big time this year and as I say all those convinced me that and VI3s I've got them for every single topic, over 100 and odd maths topics. They're all available for free on the website. Give that a go. I'll be interested if it's something you think that your students and your staff would engage with. And by all means, please share some more of these because, you know, I want to fill this up. I want this to be the world's biggest collection of these things. So that's our way of trying to make feedback manageable and effective. Um, and yeah, hopefully that fits in with, with what Dylan was saying. One thing that it doesn't do is it doesn't equip students with skills that are non-topic specific. And that's something I'm going to have to ponder. Our feedback is very much directed towards the topic in hand. So for example, all these uh, things I've talked about here will hopefully help students get better with developing their skills of straight line graphs. But will they then branch out to more algebraic skills and, and, and skills with number and so on? I'm not so sure, but hopefully this kind of problem solving and generalization that's that's kind of implicit within there and intrinsic to, to the solution to these questions will hopefully help the students develop those. So anyway, that, that was my kind of takeaway on feedback. Hope that's useful. But once again, enough of me because Dylan was kind enough to stay around to record a podcast puzzle. But not only that, he's recorded two and they are absolute classics. I'm going to be honest with you, the first one's a little bit over my head, but I've been working on the second one and it's absolutely brilliant. So let me hand back now to Mr. Dylan Williams. I actually have two puzzles, one pure and one applied. The applied one first. It concerns the angle poise lamp. It's relatively straightforward to design an angle poise lamp with two opposed springs. But at a workshop I attended in the late 1970s, Douglas Quadling suggested that it was possible to design an angle poise lamp with just a single spring. It took me several months of Sunday afternoons to figure out a way of doing it. The pure puzzle is even stranger. It concerns two ferociously smart mathematicians, Petra and Sam, and two whole numbers, x and y, which are each greater than one 
and less than 100. Petra has been told their product, and Sam has been told their sum. The following exchange takes place. Petra, I don't know what the numbers are. Sam, I know you don't. I don't either. Petra, now I know them. Sam, now I do too. What are the numbers? Flippin' heck, what a good couple of puzzles they are. Um, if you're stuck on those, do not even bother contacting me. I've no idea. Send Dylan a tweet. The link to his Twitter is on the podcast notes page, along with everything else that we've discussed throughout this episode. So, I really hope you enjoyed that one. All that's left for me to do is to once again pass on my unending thanks to Dylan for, for taking the time to appear on the show. Um, and also to podcastthemes.com for providing the lovely jazzy music that you've heard throughout the episode. Um, if you get time to do us a rating on iTunes, I'd absolutely love it and perhaps more importantly um, I'm really proud of this episode and if you wouldn't mind sharing it with with your colleagues whether they're math teachers or not math teachers um, I'd really appreciate that because I think it's important that this message gets out there I think what Dylan had to say whether you agree with it or not it, it, it's thought-provoking and it's important to to reflect on your practice so share this episode review it if you can that would be great and I will be back with more fascinating guests on the Mr Barton Maths podcast in the coming weeks and months. Thanks so much for listening. It really does mean the world to me. Take care of yourselves and bye for now.